Today on this final Sunday before Lent, we celebrate Christ's transfiguration, this miraculous moment in which he becomes a being of pure light before returning to his human form. He is momentarily removed from this material world of physics, from the very laws of cause and effect. He stands outside of the world that we know. The disciples that are with him, Peter, James, and John, understandably have no idea what to make of any of this. They are limited by their experience and perhaps a failure of imagination, unable to grasp a larger reality. I suppose, as is often the case in the Bible, that the disciples are a lot like us. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as bright as light. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will set up three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they raised their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As a philosophy major during my undergraduate years, I read a lot of things that seemed rather silly at the time. Lots of dead white men pontificating on virtue, morality, and the meaning of life in the most abstract possible terms. Consider, for instance, Immanuel Kant's musings on the notion of free will. The faculty of desire, in accordance with concepts, insofar as the ground determining it to action, lies within itself and not in its object, is called a faculty to do or refrain from doing as one pleases, he writes. Human choice, however, is a choice that can indeed be affected but not determined by impulses and is therefore of itself, apart from an acquired proficiency of reason, not pure but can still be determined to actions by pure will. Well, obviously. I'd read that again, but I assure you it won't make any more sense the second time. I have to tell you, I always felt a little bit like a fish out of water when hanging around the other two guys at my university who are also 
majoring in philosophy. Yes, among thousands of undergrads, there were only three of us, just three. I'd only pursued this degree because Southern Connecticut State University does not offer a major in religion or theology, but they did offer me a pretty good scholarship, and philosophy was the closest alternative. Now, these other guys, though, their names were actually Peter and James, incidentally. They were really into this stuff. They'd sit around all weekend arguing about Hegelian phenomenology and Aristotelian ethics. I just wanted to go back to my dorm room and play video games. But I'd sometimes get stuck at their apartment listening to them carrying on about Kant's categorical imperative and the brilliance of the Socratic dialogues. Well, I have to admit that Plato's depiction of Socrates is kind of amusing. His conversations with lesser mortals always come off as really condescending, and these other characters are always telling Socrates how smart he is and fawning all over him. In his dialogue with Meno, for instance, Socrates tells the Greek general, a man cannot inquire either about that which he knows or about that which he does not know. For if he knows, he has no need to inquire. And if not, he cannot, for he does not know the very subject about which he is to inquire. Necessarily, Meno agrees enthusiastically. It could not be otherwise. Everyone seems to respond to all of Socrates' observations with the same handful of phrases. Necessarily, certainly, it is as exactly as you say. It could not be otherwise. It became something of an in-joke among my friends in college who knew enough to get it. Hey, are you going to that party this weekend, one of them would ask me. It could not be otherwise. I've always been a believer and an advocate of free will and responsibility. And yet I have to admit that there's something about that phrase, it could not be otherwise, that haunts me. Despite Kant's argument for the existence of human free will, others posit a more deterministic worldview, namely that our actions are already determined by our genetics, our experience, our environment, our culture, our history, so on and so forth. We are, according to philosophical determinism, like the eight ball on a billiards table, our trajectory dictated by forces beyond our control, our behavior preordained by the laws of Newtonian physics. One thing leads to another, and everything we say and do, well, it could not be otherwise. Free will, according to the determinist, is just a convenient illusion. Now, if you're at all familiar with chaos theory, it basically posits that seemingly random events can be traced back to an initial cause. The so-called butterfly effect, also known as deterministic chaos, claims that a tornado could be traced to the flapping of a butterfly's wings several weeks prior, unbeknownst to the butterfly. These initial conditions are highly sensitive, with even slight variations leading to wildly different results. Just as the change in the angle of a pool cue will send the cue ball in an entirely different direction 
on the table. But like the trajectory of a bullet, you can trace anything back to its original source. I mean, did I really decide of my own free will to eat those hot dogs last night at 11.30 before I went to sleep? Or was my behavior dictated, foreordained, if you will, by a complex series of factors? Genetic predisposition and hunger certainly played a role, along with fond childhood memories of eating microwave hot dogs with my father. And the ad for Oscar Mayer wieners that turned up on my Facebook feed three days ago, also dictated by invisible algorithms, may have had something to do with it. Determinists would argue that we are essentially prisoners, locked in a chain of events, our future already predetermined. And given enough data, in theory, one can make forecasts. If you know all of the factors, vectors, and angles, hypothetically speaking, if you've got a robust enough model, one can predict future outcomes within a certain margin of error. It's come to light that Exxon, for instance, developed its own climate models in the late 1970s that have proven to be roughly 80% accurate. But that was bad for the oil business, of course, and whoever was in charge at the time favored short-term profits over long-term sustainability because that's what our culture dictates. People like Tyree Nichols and the countless others killed in police custody are victims of more than just bad cops. They're victims of a system. When you combine unchecked authority with military-grade hardware, incentives for traffic stops, a culture of machismo, and a history of systemic racism, you don't have to be a chaos theorist or a fortune teller to know that bad things are going to happen. In much the same way, the horrific Train derailment in Ohio this month, which spewed a million tons of vinyl chloride into the air in the Ohio River Basin, could have been predicted. The condition of the tracks, the state of the Civil War era braking system and rail car axles, the length of the train and the loosening of regulations all but guaranteed the outcome with mathematical certainty. It could not be otherwise. Or could it? What if these disasters could have been prevented? What if someone, anyone, had stood up and defied the status quo, changed the trajectory of events? What if we do have free will, but we don't always choose to exercise it? Heraclitus, sometimes called the father of determinism, famously said, that you cannot step into the same river twice. It is always in flux, always flowing. Causality is like that, cause and effect, flowing endlessly, determining the course of events. What happens upstream eventually flows downstream. A literal concern in Ohio these days. But what if we could, even for just a moment, step outside of the water. There's an old joke about a couple of fish that I'm sure you've heard before. 
There are these two young fish swimming along on their way to school, pun intended. And they happen to meet an older fish along the way who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? After the older fish is gone, one of them turns to the other and says, What the heck is water? We are so immersed in the flow of causality that we don't even recognize the ways that we might be influenced by it. And it's only when we stop and recognize the water that we're in that we can actively choose to step outside of it and to exercise our free will. I'm going to tell you a story I'm not proud of. When I was in high school, I once helped a couple of other guys tip over a porta potty at the local park. Like I said, I'm not proud of it. Even in the moment, I wasn't proud of it. And I recognized that I was doing something bad, something wrong, but I was swept up in the chain of events that led me to this place. The years of elementary school torment and the insecurity that it caused and the desperate need to be liked all left me unequipped to deal with the peer pressure. It was easier, as it always is, to just go with the flow, to let the currents of causality carry me downriver, to give the stall just a little push, a little tip, and to let gravity do the rest. To go with the flow, and good Lord, there was a flow. I'll never forget the sound of it hitting the ground, a loud crash followed by the sloshing of water that flooded the overturned box. I felt ill. I immediately regretted my decision, or really a lack of decision. As that old Rush song about free will goes, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. But you know, I certainly didn't feel like I had a choice in that moment. It felt like a fait accompli, inevitable. Maybe those Exxon executives or the cops that stand by or participate when a man is shot or beaten to death, or the lobbyists for the railroad companies, maybe they all feel the same way. Like, whatever course they're on is inevitable. Maybe they don't want to be the only ones to stand up and refuse to participate in something they know is wrong. Maybe they don't want to be the proverbial fish out of water. But if they had recognized the water that they swam in, maybe they could have made a more conscious and a more conscientious choice. Now God, I believe, exists outside of the flow of causality. God is not influenced by genetics or history or culture but in taking human form as Jesus and walking upon the earth, God steps into that river, that flow, as surely as Jesus stepped into the Jordan. Jesus, the man, the man is subject to cause and effect. That is precisely why he had to die. Because the actions that he took, the choices that he made, set off a chain of events that resulted in his execution. I believe that if one could consider all possible futures, see all of the potential trajectories on the billiards table, there's not a single one in which Jesus survives. 
and he knows it. God knows it, but still chooses to be human, still chooses to pursue the ministry that will lead to crucifixion. God steps into that flow, into that river, in the hope of changing its course. And in this text where Jesus is transfigured upon the mountaintop, we catch just a glimpse of the real Jesus, the Christ. In this passage, he takes just a step outside of the current, like a man coming up for air, before returning to the world of cause and effect where he knows that he's going to die and where he knows that that is not the end of the story. He does it because he knows that his life and his death will change things, disrupt the flow, just as a fish crashing back into the water makes ripples along its surface. In this moment on the mountaintop, we don't just meet Jesus the man. We encounter Christ, the Word of God, who reminds us that there exists a larger universe of possibility than we can imagine, something larger than the narrow confines of the river that sweeps us along. Kant actually had it right, I think, in the passage I read earlier. Distilled down to its essence, it really does make sense. He said, human choice can indeed be affected, but not determined. In a book I recently read, a somewhat omniscient character tells the hero, the world is as moonlight reflected on the water's surface. So long as the moon exists in the sky, moonlight will remain on the water. We subsist within the current of causality, the whorls of karma. Maybe you aren't a shadow on the water, but instead a fish that breaches the water's surface. Now, if that's true for you and I, friends, then perhaps we too can make ripples that will change the world. And if a butterfly can make a tornado by accident, just imagine what you and I can do if we choose to. Amen.